Amen. Find in your Bibles Romans chapter 12, verse 21. The last verse, or excuse me, the, yes, the last verse in Romans chapter 12. While I've been exercising lately, I've been watching a documentary on O.J. Simpson. It's fascinating. It's an ESPN 30 for 30, if you're familiar with those. And this is about a five-part, eight-hour uh, series, and it's absolutely riveting. He was a frequent adulterer, and one of his friends, who never purported to be a believer, said this, and I'm quoting him. He said, O.J., you're violating the laws of God. You can't violate the laws of God and get away with it. God's laws are being violated today, and now we see the harvest coming in. And that's why we're in this series entitled Take Heart, because many are losing heart as our country, our people around us are being overcome by evil. So let's read just this one verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 21. The Apostle Paul wrote, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now this is admittedly a heavy sermon series. I'm going to end this in a few weeks because these are weighty subjects, but they're subjects that must be addressed. And as you know, at West Haven, we don't try to dodge hard topics or hard texts. We want to preach to you the whole counsel of God. We want to equip you. So my prayer for this series is that God would calm our fears, renew our hope, and strengthen our resolve. Two weeks ago, we asked this question, why is wickedness growing? Last week, we turned to Psalm 10 to learn how to pray when wickedness is growing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Today, we look at Romans 12, 21, and that's going to teach us how to overcome when wickedness is growing. The first thing I want you to see is the danger of being overcome by evil. When verse 21 says, don't be overcome by evil, that means it's entirely possible for evil to overcome us. And the word overcome means to subdue or conquer. What does it look like to be overcome by evil? Now, if we go to the narrowest of context in this chapter, it speaks of not taking revenge. So this morning, if you have been grossly mistreated at some time in your life, if you've been abused, slandered, maligned, or swindled, it's tempting to want to get your pound of flesh. Evil will seduce you to give in to revenge or anger or bitterness. The inclination of our flesh and the ways of the world say, be angry. Don't let it go. Get revenge. And when that happens, you've been overcome by evil. But there are other examples. If we continually fill our mind and our soul with so-called news channels and talk shows, always on, seldom accurate, but intended to inflame, you'll grow fearful. Peace and hope will be elusive, and you'll be overcome by evil. I had the misfortune one time several years ago of going to a, a physician's office in Kansas City, and the place was packed. They were way behind. There was one seat. It was right underneath the television that was blaring full blast, and I got introduced that morning to a show called The View. I thought, where's a pencil? I'm just going to take my eardrums out. It's not, they're not going to do you any good, are they? That's a way to be overcome by evil. Let's say you're a student. Everybody knows what the view is, I noticed, by the way. <laughs> Let's say you're a student, and your friends want you to go out and party. And you know what that means. 
And they ask you and they ask you and you resist at first, but you eventually give in. And you find yourself habitually doing that which you know will harm you. And by the way, that was me as a teenager. And I was overcome by evil. Or you're sexually tempted. There's relentless pressure from your friends, the culture, and your flesh. And so eventually you fail. Not once, but repeatedly. And you finally just give up on the idea of repentance because this behavior is all around you. Maybe this is the way it should be. Evil has overcome you. Do not be overcome by evil. We can't grasp the magnitude of that statement without going into the historical context behind this. This will be very applicable. It'll help you realize how, how relevant this verse is to our day. It's going to be a little long, but hang in there with me. First of all, the spiritual background. The average person had almost no way to learn truth or to feed his soul. Remember, Paul wrote this from a Roman prison around 57 to 60 A.D. Gentiles in Rome had no source of truth. False gods surrounded them. The spiritual formation of Jews then still came from the influence of two groups that were dominant in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were legalists. They developed 39 classifications of way to break the Sabbath with 1,521 ways under the 39 categories, and then there were subcategories under those. So imagine going into a synagogue on a Sabbath. You're a Jew and you want to learn more about the ways of God. And the priest stands up and says, you can lift a child on the Sabbath, but not if the child has a stone in his hand, because that will be work. But then what is a stone? How big is a Sabbath-breaking stone? How heavy? What's the difference between a stone and maybe a little pebble? So they had to go into detail to define what a stone was. Now, incredibly, they were popular with the people. They loved money and adulation, but the people still followed them. And Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, and you do not allow those who are entering to go in. Then there were the Sadducees. You could say they were the religious progressives of our day. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul or the existence of angels. What did they believe in? Only that the first five books of the Bible were Scripture. Josephus, the historian, says they were the party of the rich and the elite, the social elite. Rome tended to protect them, and in return, they expected them to help keep peace among the unwashed masses, so to speak. These were the dry spiritual wells from which people had to drink. Now, that was the uh, spiritual background. Now, the secular background. And remember, most of the known world was ruled by the Roman Empire. I know that we get really frustrated with our elected officials. Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. Augustus was the Caesar at the birth of Jesus. His given name was Octavian, but the Roman Senate conferred on him the title of dictator. Incredibly, he turned it down, so they gave him the name Augustus, which means revered. He was heterosexual or homosexual, depending upon the day. Very young women selected by him were forced to be brought to him. Tiberius was a Caesar during the life of Jesus. He was known for great ability but bad character. 
He forced little boys to be with him. One time afterward, two of them complained, so he had their legs broken. Then came Caligula. He was immoral in ways I cannot articulate from a pulpit. I mean, I can articulate it, but it's not appropriate. He instituted emperor worship, demanded to be worshipped as a god. He would bring in statues of old Greek gods, decapitate them, and then replace them with busts of his own head. He decreed that statues of himself be built in all places of worship across the Roman Empire. And remember, they had all kinds of gods, but included in that decree was synagogues. Now the Jews rebelled against that, so in return, he decided to put one of the temple in Jerusalem, and fortunately, his advisors talked him out of that, lest there be a massive riot. He outsourced some of his authority in Palestine to Herod Agrippa. Well, they hated the Jews, so Herod arrested and killed James. The people liked it, so he arrested Peter. But shortly thereafter, God struck him, and he was eaten by worms and died, the Bible says. Meanwhile, everyone got their belly full of Caligula, and the Praetorian Guard assassinated him. That would be like the Secret Service assassinating the president. Claudius was the ruler from 41 to 54 AD. Acts 18 tells us he expelled the Jews from Rome. He was a competent ruler, but his marriage was pretty bad. His wife was a serial adulterer who eventually poisoned him to death. She did that so her son would become the emperor. His name was Nero, and that began the persecution of the church. Nero was popular among the people because he gave them things. He would give away a thousand birds a day. He would give away grain, clothing, and gold, precious stones, paintings, slaves, and trained animals. But he unleashed sexual perversion. He was incestuous. He forced two men, Sporus and Doriferous, to live as transsexuals. He publicly married them and then led them through the streets of Rome as his wives. And he was a very, uh, excuse me, eventually married to three women and those two. Oh, by the way, he poisoned his 14-year-old brother Britannica to death. He had his mother's, or excuse me, his soldiers club his mother to death. Happy Mother's Day. He killed several consorts, and he kicked one woman to death while she was pregnant. His fiscal policy was to spend money on himself. He decided to build a magnificent palace, which the country couldn't afford. So to make up for the shortfall, he withheld pay from soldiers, he confiscated the property of some wealthy Roman citizens, fixed trading markets in his favor, and robbed local shrines of precious metal and jewel. Despite that, he didn't have enough space for his palace, so he decided to burn down some of the buildings in his way. To disguise his involvement, he had teams of arsonists set little fires throughout the city, but some of them got away from them, and Rome burned. And as Rome burned, the people fumed. So to stay politically solvent, he blamed it on Christians. The historian Tacitus explains it from here, and I'm quoting. Nero substituted his culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled as Christians. Vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the count of arson, but as for hatred of the human race, they were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses, and when daylight failed, they were burned to serve as lamps by night. It was during this time of spiritual bankruptcy 
and wicked government that Paul warned Christians do not be overcome by evil. Our world has always been wicked. And it's very easy to get us swept away in it, but Paul says don't be overcome by it. Now we might say, I'm just going to ignore it all. I'm going to keep my head down and leave it alone. The problem is, evil won't let you alone. You have to take up arms against it in your own soul. So how do we do that? There's the discipline necessary to resist evil. The discipline necessary to resist evil, and I want to tell you before I go into this, I was very much convicted about my own life as I wrote this sermon. Now one thing that we can't do is deny what's happening around us. We can be like the proverbial frogs in a pot of water. You've probably heard this before. The heat is turned on under the pot and the water becomes warm and one of the frogs finally says, you know, it's warm in here. But he's rebuked and ridiculed by the other frogs. They say, it's not that warm, it's fine. And then the water gets a little hotter and a little hotter. And a few more frogs speak up, but they're, they're marginalized. You're alarmist. You're always so negative. And the water continues to get hotter. And the naive frogs say, this is fine. And one day, the water boils all the frogs to death. So yes, the water is hotter. But to avoid being overcome by evil. We can't deny that wickedness is growing, but we must resist where it wants to take us. So to overcome evil, spiritual discipline is necessary, and I'm going to show you four ways. Number one, think biblically. Think biblically. As Proverbs says, as a man thinketh, so is he. Have you ever noticed that it's much easier to remember some sort of a crude saying or something negative someone said to you than it is to memorize a passage of Scripture? I mean, right now, every one of you can remember something that someone said to you that was negative 10, 20, 30 years ago, but I have trouble remembering my own name sometimes. We have a proclivity to think negatively, to think sinfully. Your thoughts will influence every area of your life. They will govern your attitude, affect your emotions. They will direct your behavior. Some research shows that it even affects your immune system. Ultimately, your mind will think about what it's most exposed to. Jesus said the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. Well, what does that mean? Your eyes are a gateway to the mind. If you look and think about the good, the biblical, that which is true, you'll be filled with the light of Jesus, and that will come out of you. But if you continually look at evil, if you expose your mind to sinful things, if you begin to be persuaded by the philosophies of the day, darkness grows within you, and that will eventually come out of you. So beware of engaging in that which desensitizes your conscience to sin. Because tolerance for sin grows. Have you ever heard of the Overton window, anyone? Yeah, okay, a few of you had. That's, and I'm going to give a rough definition here. That's 
what is acceptable as public discourse. It was named after a sociologist, so the Overton window always moves. And if you want proof of that, can you imagine 15 years ago, a president standing up and talking about transsexualism and that being a good thing? It would not be acceptable in public discourse. That's proof that tolerance for sin grows. The willingness to accept sinful ideas and philosophy increases. And if we're not careful, that desire for holiness decreases. Listen, you can overcome evil by changing the way you think. Look up at verse 2 in Romans chapter 12, just a few verses up. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? By keeping it in this word. Philippians chapter 4 says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence or anything worthy of praise dwell on these things the way to keep the way to be the way to avoid being overcome by evil is the word of God and here's why if you're thinking what is right you're not going to be thinking wrong so filter everything that you hear and see in your life through a biblical world view and when you do Proverbs chapter 2 promises this wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul, discretion will guard you, and understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil. So think biblically. Number two, associate wisely. And I'd like you to find Psalm 1 for just a moment. The first psalm in your Bible. We have to be around all kinds of people in this world, but choose carefully who you spend the most time with. We need to have relationships with lost people, but if lost people are your closest friends, remember that good morals do not convert bad company. Bad company corrupts good morals. So Psalm 1 is very helpful here because it tells us the way the wicked will influence us. First notice, they will influence us with ungodly advice. Verse 1, Psalm 1, how blessed or how happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That word counsel means advice. Who or what right now today shapes your opinions? We're in a day where there are things called social media influencers or TV celebrities. Do they speak into your life? Who or what shapes your values? I mean, we have God's word to do that. And granted, you can get good advice from bad people or bad advice from good people, but filter all advice through the Word of God. There is ungodly advice, but there are also ungodly associations. Verse 1 says, nor stand in the path of sinners. I want to make this really clear. The Bible does not teach a way of life that looks as excuse me, that looks at lost and worldly people like they're radioactive. We love all people. That's why we work so hard in serving our community. I'm still amazed at the work you do in getting fresh donuts to every business on Tuesdays. That's just, God bless you, those of you who are involved in that. And so many other things that we do. Uh, our, our Awana, student ministry, children's church, nursery, we could keep going. 
We do all that because we want to point people to the greatest love in the universe that exists, the love of Jesus. But the old saying is, birds of a feather flock together. It's one thing to have friendship with sinners. It's another thing to have fellowship with sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was a friend because he preached the good news that the forgiveness of sins is available and the grace of God can come into the life of every single person who exists. So there's ungodly advice, ungodly attitudes, or excuse me, associations, and then there's this one, ungodly attitudes. This one dinged me. Have you ever noticed, those of you who work for any kind of a corporation or maybe a small business, no one has ever sent you to a weekend seminar or a retreat to learn how to have a bad attitude? <laughs> it kind of comes naturally. So how much more should we heed the warning at the end of verse 1, nor sit in the seat of scoffers? Notice the negative progression in this verse. You're walking, standing, and then sitting. There's a distance, then there's a closeness. You get bad advice, you keep bad company, and one day you find yourself scoffing at that which you once held sacred, and evil has overcome you. And my dear friends, I have seen that happen too many times in the ministry. So think biblically, associate wisely. Number three, listen discerningly. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warns that the Spirit clearly says that in the later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. False teaching opens the floodgates of wickedness. And false teaching doesn't come from someone with a tail and two horns. It's seductive. I've mentioned before that the background to many passages, especially sexuality, are now being rewritten to fit our wicked culture. 2,000 years of sound research and exegesis agreed upon by men and women from diverse expressions of Christianity is now being discarded to normalize sexual sin. So it said that Jesus and John were in a homosexual relationship. So were David and Jonathan. And an egregious example is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It says, Do not be deceived. And then it lists people who unrepentantly practice certain sins, and it says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In that list are effeminate and homosexuals. To be discreet, it's referring to two men together. English translators have chosen not to be too frank. Now it's being taught that Paul was only referring to the use of male temple prostitutes or sexual abuse by a heterosexual. We need discernment to filter out the lies of the devil. The Bible says solid food is for the mature because of practice. They have trained their senses. They've trained their senses to discern good and evil. Develop discernment and you'll be protected and your family will be protected from evil. And then the fourth way is just this. Live simply. 1 John chapter 2, John warns us not to love the world or anything in the world because the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Imbibing in the world is like drinking salt water. It just increases your thirst. So lower 
the temperature of your flesh. Don't live so intensely for the here and now. We seem to fear that we're going to miss out on some experience on earth, even though we are assured that we will inherit the earth, and that will be an earth without sin. Now, I want to get to the final point, so I'm going to have to move on. But here's the point. If we keep living by the flesh, we're ripe to be overcome by evil. So there's the danger of being overcome by evil, the discipline necessary to resist evil. There's a direction in this verse to overcome evil, and the direction is overcome evil with good. Now, I think if we're honest, we read that and we say overcome evil with good. How does that happen? Well, there is an example, I think, in the Bible. In fact, I think there's several, but one that comes to my mind is David and Saul. David was the rightful king. Saul repeatedly tried to kill him. On two occasions, David could have easily killed him. He could have gotten revenge for him making his life miserable. But David said, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. And Saul was overcome by evil. Not only did he repeatedly try to kill David, he disobeyed God in a battle. He became involved in the occult and mortally wounded in battle. He took his own life. Meanwhile, David ascended to the throne. His good overcame evil. But a feeling of the impossible can come over this regarding this verse if we don't keep it in context. So remember here, Paul is not speaking of converting a wicked government. He's not referring to Nero. He's not speaking of you having the ability to completely change everyone around you. And he's not speaking about changing the morals of the Roman citizenry. This is a personal instruction. We can individually overcome evil in our life with good. First, we have to abhor evil. To love what is good, you have to abhor the evil that destroys it. Second, we use biblical principles to fight against evil. We don't fight with worldly weapons like, you get me, I'll get you. No, we fight hatred with love. We fight immorality with purity. We fight lies with truth. We fight dishonesty with integrity, and we fight sin with grace. And number three, remember Jesus. He was arrested and accused by liars, turncoats, and people who claimed to know God, but hatred dripped out of their pores. False testimony was brought against him. He was beaten and whipped, a crown of thorns shoved down on his head, a rigged trial was held he was nailed to a cross yet his response on that cross was father forgive them for they know not what they are doing the best example of good overcoming evil was when Jesus did for us what we could have never done for ourselves we are evil Jesus overcame that by satisfying God's righteous demands, enduring God's wrath on the cross for our sin so that we might be forgiven and free. Colossians 1.21 describes how that happens. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. It says, you were his enemies. 
separated from him by your thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Why did he do that? So that you and I would be, as hard as this may be to believe, this is the grace of God, so that you and I may be holy and blameless and stand before him without a single flaw. Turn to the person next to you and say, see, I told you I'm perfect. <laughs> I don't hear anybody doing that. But. And remember this, evil can't drive out evil. Jesus told the Pharisees that Satan can't drive out Satan. So evil won't change evil. Using evil to prevent evil is like putting out a fire with gasoline. When we respond with good in the face of evil, people may or may not change. That's not our responsibility. But in so doing, we glorify Jesus and we keep ourselves from being overcome by evil. Eight years ago, there was a man named Dylan Roof. He walked into a Wednesday night church Bible study and gunned down nine people. At his sentencing, a woman named Myra Thompson spoke. He killed a relative of hers that night, and here's what she said. I forgive him, and my family forgives him. But we would like to take this opportunity to tell him to repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters most, Christ. He can change you and change your way so that no matter what happens to you, you'll be okay. That's good, overcoming evil. And it could be this morning that evil has always prevented you from trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It maybe is the evil inside of you, maybe it's the evil around you, but something, someone has always kept you from him. Maybe it's something someone did to you in the past. Maybe it's just you're resisting something because you would say you're angry at God and you don't like what he did in the past. But today you sense that the Holy Spirit is softening your heart, that he's drawing you to himself. Listen, today the doors are wide open. God's grace is available to all people. And friends, Jesus is the best way to live, and he is the only way to die. So if you've never given your life to Jesus, I'm asking you to do that right now. I mentioned myself earlier on. Most of you know my story, probably just about everybody here. If Jesus can save me, I promise you he can save you. One of the things I always look back on is this. Two people I knew, a friend of mine and a mother of a friend of mine, both said to me separately, you are the last person I ever thought would get saved. I wasn't that evil. There's no outstanding warrants. <laughs> but I was so hard-hearted and so disinterested. So if there was hope for me, there's hope for you. This is the grace of God. So right now we're going to pray, and I want to pray for any of you that have never trusted Jesus. I'm going to ask that you would take that step of faith today, and then you would talk to me or Pastor Nathan or someone around you, because we want to help you get started in the Christian life. One of the first steps is to be baptized. 
as a public profession of faith. We want to share with you the joy of your salvation and bless you in every way possible.